All right, why don't you guys do this? Open up your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Matthew. If you're new here, I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here, and uh, we have started a few weeks ago a little series over the summer through the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where we're at today. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening up to Matthew chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, we do have them in the back. I want to read verses 21 down to about verse 26, and that will hopefully get us caught up a little bit to speed as to where we're at in terms of the text. So let's do this. Let's all stand. You guys wouldn't mind to read the Bible together. Um, you follow along, I'll read. How about that? Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus is going to talk about something that we all love to hear. Anger. Yeah, it's that message today. <laughs> Father's Day. I didn't plan it this way. Our father did. Anyways, verse 21. You have heard that it is said, or has been said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that the bro- your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge over to the guard, and then the guard puts you in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus, we pray that you would open your word to our hearts even now. God, pray that you'd help me to be able to speak clearly and articulately what you desire to have us hear. Lord, I pray especially that today would not just be simply about us getting information, but that we would really have revelation that would bring about life change. So we give you this morning, we pray, God, that you would have your way in our hearts. We just devote it to you, God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus touches on, a, on an issue that really affects um, all of us. Um, before I jump in, I want to kind of start by showing you guys a few scenes or pictures that are going to be up on the screen. And these pictures basically um, are images that have been known sort of as pulp, uh, pop culture items, not pulp culture items, pop culture items. And uh, they're items or pictures that we would recognize, and they sort of bring uh, certain memories to us. I mean, you see the picture of 9-11 happening, the Ku Klux Klan. You see uh, all of these guys that are following Hitler. All of these really speak of, of images of hate and profound anger that ultimately lead to death and murder and really fueled by anger, so on and so forth. Um, the next picture I want you to see also speaks about sort of a culmination of hatred and anger, and it becomes one of the most uh, profound symbols, obviously, of our faith, but also at the same time of what anger and hatred will ultimately lead to, and it led to Jesus being uh, crucified and killed, but at the same time what happens is the cross becomes sort of this picture for sort of a double analogy. I mean, on the one end, it speaks about what happens when people are full of greed and envy and hatred and anger, that it leads to death. Somebody dies. Um, But at the same time, unless something comes in and steps in the way or challenges 
the hatred and the anger or the type of direction which we go in life, then really nothing changes. So not only does the cross speak to us about what happens when hatred, anger, greed, all these other types of things sort of culminate, cause this, at the same time the cross does speak to us of peace. In other words, it speaks to us, because Paul talks about it this way, that God has made peace with us through the death of His Son on the cross. So it's sort of a double analogy. And so in the same way, the point that I would make is this, is the cross becomes sort of this picture of how to fight against the anger and malice and rage that leads to what Jesus ultimately says, the fires of Gehenna. We'll explain what that looks like a little bit more in just a moment. But the next picture that I want you to see is sort of the picture that sort of symbolizes, or has come to symbolize, a change, a defiance. Or, in other words, a way to stand against evil, oppression, anger, bitterness, in a very profound way. Not with sword, not with like, you know, laser-guided missiles, but in a different way. And that's what I love about this picture. I love, I actually stood there in Tiananmen Square. To be able to see that was amazing. To think, this is the spot where this picture, whoever caught this picture, obviously, you know, probably, I don't even know if it makes royalties on it, but it's a great picture. Because it speaks about somebody standing up to an, oppre- an oppressive regime with no weapon in his hand. And in a very real way, that's what the cross speaks to us of. Jesus stands up against this oppressive regime, fueled by Satan, led by the enemy of our souls, set on fire by the flames of hell, that's taking people down all around us. Everywhere we look, somebody's going down. Jesus fights against this, not with weapons, not with more malice, not with thorough anger, but by love. Lovingly laying his life down, becoming, in the eyes of many, although not his, the victim. Jesus was never a victim. He willingly lays his life down. He could have destroyed them, chooses not to. He chooses to exercise a different rule. And that's what Jesus basically is going to be calling his disciples to live according to. What I want to do now is I want to take a look at a couple of stats that uh, sort of define the culture in which we live in. So the next slide you'll see uh, several different stats. Um, before we jump into that, that's sort of the 20th century uh, stats on murder. Um, just in California alone, in 2007, I did some uh, uh, stats on this, in just California alone, violent crimes. There was 191,000 violent crimes. Murder, I mean, this is not just death, uh, but this is actual somebody murdering somebody else. Murder is distinct in the Bible from killing. It's important to know that. The Bible does say one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not murder. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill. The distinction in God's mind, killing is uh, not so much done with motivation of anger. Murder is. And murder in the culture today of 2007 in the state of California was 2,260. There were uh, 9,000 rapes. Rape also goes along with sort of an aggravated type of an assault or an attack. Um, an aggravated type of assault it was 109,000. This is just in California alone. In the 20th century, what we see uh, several statistics over here, probably one that might be lesser known to most of you is the uh, Armenian uh, genocide, which took place in Turkey, um, kind of towards the beginning of the century. And there was uh, 1.5 million deaths. Uh, more of us are more familiar with Stalin. And uh, 7 million people he killed. These were not just Jews. These were gypsies. These were old people. 
These were sort of the uh, vagrants of society, people that anybody just sort of viewed as disposable. And the reason why they were viewed as disposable, because they were leeches on society in the minds of uh, Stalin, at least, and the other people that were working for him. Um, there's another one that was called the Rape of Nanking, which uh, Japanese, uh, just around World War II, had marched into the capital of China. It was a city of around 600,000 people. 300,000 people were raped and murdered um, just by the Japanese people. Horrible, horrible event. Um, obviously, we're all familiar with the Nazi Holocaust. Six million Jews were put to death. Rwanda, 1994, 800,000 deaths. Um, in Bosnia, uh, around 1992, 200,000 deaths. I also threw this stat up here just for you guys to be aware of. Since 1973, uh, 50 million babies have been killed. Oftentimes motivated out of selfishness. Oftentimes motivated out of just simple fact that there's no value viewed within them. So the point that I would want to make is this. We live in a culture that is really steeped in a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Oftentimes the results are murder. But prior to murder, prior to the actual activity of murder, is sort of this action or this, not say action, but this attitude that leads to the action. And Jesus is going to call it as it is in its hatefulness. There's this anger, this vengeance that goes on within a person, person's heart that leads to these particular activities. I mean, the bottom line is, is we live in a culture where we have double locks. We live in ho- homes with home security systems. We raise dogs that can attack people. Uh, we are living in paranoia. All right? Right? We just are afraid somebody may break into our house. We're afraid of something very bad happening to us. We take out massive insurance policies because we are expecting something possibly to happen to us. That's the world we live in. My point is this. The world we live in is not this utopia that we oftentimes yearn for. I think the reality is we understand some things, things could be and should be differently, right? This is why... Uh, Oprah exists because she spends a lot of time trying to figure out how can we make the world different. This is why we have talk radio. This is why we have, I mean, Rush Limbaugh. I mean, you know, all these guys are like, these are their little peanut gallery how to figure out how to make the world a little bit better. Right? Magazines, books, self-help sections. A lot of these are attempts to try to figure out how to fix the brokenness. How to fix it. The problem is, the problem with all the analysis and over-analysis and the types of means by which we sort of diagnose it and say, if we do this, it'll be better, is most of those elements start with a broken view of mankind. Here's what I mean. If we start with a baseline and say, this is the ideal, this is what mankind should look like, and that person that we're looking at is not Jesus then we're starting with a broken person. Does that make sense? So we might work really hard to try to get back to this particular ideal, but it's not going to be whole. It's not going to be what it should be. Jesus becomes this ideal. Jesus is going to communicate to the people that he's speaking to, here's how to fulfill, here's how to live out the intention of the law of Moses. All right? Because he just got finished saying, earlier in the chapter, I didn't come to destroy the law came to fulfill the law. I think we looked at this last week and we said there's at least two things Jesus is saying. One, 
He's going to fulfill the law, but he's going to live it out perfectly in every single thing he does. But I think, secondly, there's also another way, is that rabbis oftentimes would try to fulfill the law by listening to the teaching or the interpretation of a skilled rabbi or teacher. So I think what Jesus is also saying, I'm the guy that you need to listen to the Torah through. In other words, I'll interpret it for you properly. I'll get you back to what Torah is supposed to mean. See, what was happening in the day in which Jesus lived, people were being fed the Torah. They were being fed messages or sermons about uh, the Word of God, but they were being sort of uh, viewed or streamed, if you would, through the scribes and Pharisees that had sort of their mock type of system set up by which to live according to certain aspects of righteousness. The reality is, it was the righteousness that they were living was all external. So here's the way they would do it, something like this. They would say, because we don't murder, we're righteous. Because we don't kill people, we're right in front of God's eyes. The problem is, is Jesus is going to say, that's not enough. You're just simply looking at what you don't have and assuming that you're righteous. See, we do similar things like this in our culture. So we can look at the scribes and Pharisees and we can accuse them and blame all we want. The problem is we do the same things. We say stuff like this. As long as I go to church every Sunday, things are cool between me and God. Right? Or as long as I have a Bible, everything's cool between me and God. Or as long as Grandma stays strong with God and, you know, she's my grandma and I buy her cookies every week. Everything is cool with me and God. I mean, we have these sort of like weird benchmarks that we set for ourselves that we say, as long as this happens or as long as I don't do this, everything's cool between me and God. I remember growing up um, not knowing God and then I came to know Christ around the time when I was almost 16 years old. Nobody ever shared the gospel with me prior to me coming to know Christ. Like never ever pulled me aside like, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? Ever. Um, at least if they did, I don't remember it happening. Uh, and so in my mind, I, I've oftentimes asked myself, what would I have responded to somebody if they asked me, um, are you going to go to heaven? I mean, are you going to be with God? Uh, and I've oftentimes thought through that, like, what would I really say? I think, to be honest with you, my answer would have been something like this. Of course I'm going to heaven because I've never killed anybody, right? I've never killed anybody. Or, of course I'm going to heaven, I've never committed adultery. I mean, mind you, I was 15, I hadn't had time yet to do it. But my point is this. I would look at certain things in my life and just say, I didn't do it. I didn't do that. And I would have this sort of standard in my life. Or I would look at some of my friends. A lot of my friends were stoners. And I would be like, I'm not getting stoned like those guys. So, therefore, I'm probably, guys, if if God's going to pick out of all of us who's going to go to heaven, I'm certain it's probably going to be me. These guys are hell's you know, kindling, all right? Not me. I'm cool. Right? And, and I think, again, what I'm doing is I'm looking at a broken scale or a broken system and judging. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were making a scale that was broken and saying, see, we don't weigh as much as we thought, right? You know, they're living in, in untruthfulness. And so what Jesus does is he comes and he wants to basically pull back the veneer and bring truth into the whole scenario. Another thing I want to say before we jump in the text is the whole idea of living in this culture that's full of anger, full of violence, um, it really does have its effect uh, upon the health of people. I mean, doctors actually have studied this and they've come to discover that what happens, there are so many negative effects upon the health 
of somebody who is perpetually angry. A lot of times doctors will tell you, you know, there's major, two major responses which people typically have towards, you know, dealing with radical stress. Either they get angry themselves and they freak out at everybody else, which really is bad because it causes, it causes like a chain of events of everybody else around. Here's an example. Boss comes in. He's freaking out. He's angry. He's like yelling at his secretary. The secretary's all stressed now. She goes home. She freaks out at her kids like, you make your own TV dinners. And now the kids are freaking out. And now they're whacking the cat. All right. And the cat's freaking out. And he's just bringing dead animals left and right up to the front door. Everybody's mad. Like, it creates a really bad environment and a world. Other people respond according to anger by just suppressing it. Suppressing it. And sometimes doctors will say, that causes a lot of other bad results too. Oftentimes, mainly within the heart of the person. They'll say, you know, like, uh, uh, get ulcers, depression can be a sort of a side effect of that. Here's some examples of, of items that I've seen that I've written down here uh, that have to do with sort of health-related problems with anger. Headaches, insomnia, high blood pressure, you can have a stroke, digestive problems such as abdominal pain, increased anxiety, skin problems, eczema, depression, heart attack. Love this one. This is fascinating. Ready for this? Gnashing of teeth. It's like, whoa, gnashing of teeth. Like, it's not even a Christian thing. It's very interesting to me that Jesus talks about it. He says, there will come a day when those who are part of this group of people that are angry be cast out and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and then Jesus talks about connecting the two. So here's what I want to finish before I jump in. There are a lot of verses that sort of talk about the negative aspects of anger. Here's a couple of them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, Paul writes to church, 1 Corinthians, and he kind of rebukes a kid who's in sin. And Paul then is basically saying, I'm going to come to Corinth, and I want to hang out with you guys, spend some time with you. He's like, I don't know what to expect, because... My last letter was a really strong rebuke. I hope you guys still like me. I still like you. Paul's is like, I hope it all works together. Here's what he says. He says, I fear that perhaps when I come, there will be quarreling and jealousy and anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. So Paul lumps anger in with conceit and jealousy in the phrase disorder. All right, here's another one. Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. Paul talks about a list of the works of the flesh or the attitudes of uh, an unregenerated life or a life that might be in Christ but still living according to some unregenerate tendencies. Here's what he says. Here's what he says. He says, uh, sorcery, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, then fits of anger. Like, fits of anger? Yeah, fits of anger. I mean, Paul's like lumping this in. He's saying, this is a bad this is a bad attitude. This is, this is not an attitude that God wants us to live. All right? Here's another one. The book of Revelation, in uh, chapter 21, verse 8, talks about at the end of time, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to uh, remake the new heavens and the new earth, or the new heavens and new earth are going to come down. talks about a brand new city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And Jesus says that uh, with him inside the city of Jerusalem, this, there will be a new life. All of those who follow him that are part of his church will be there. But he says, outside of the walls of Jerusalem, outside of this new city, will be those. It says that, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, and as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, they will have the portion, 
Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So here's what Jesus says. That with me for all eternity will be people that will be like me. People that are full of love. People that are changed like me. But outside will be sort of this collective group of people that, have, that look nothing like me. That act nothing like me. That have not wanted to look nothing like me. And in that group of people, among sexually immoral, be perverts, or whatever you want, uh, will also be angry people. Just people that are angry. People that are mad and just have never been able to control it. So here's what I want to basically say before we jump into this. We are an angry group of people living in an angry world. I mean, bottom line is, is that no matter how much we sort of anesthetize ourselves by as much entertainment as we can, no matter how much we try to sort of numb our minds to thinking about this or dealing with this or just sort of setting our minds into another place where we don't have to worry about it, the reality is, is we're just angry people. We try hard to suppress it and cover it up and deal with it as much as we can. But the reality is, is we live in a culture that more so than ever before is on more medication than it ever has, is more emotionally distraught than ever, and at the same time there's murders and all sorts of things that are going around us, and it really is just not getting any better. I mean, there might be moments where it's like, you know, L.A. might be a little bit better than it was the year before. That might just simply be because there's more cops on the street, right? It's certainly not because people are like, you know what? I'm just going to start loving people. It's certainly not what's happening in the world, all right? It's not what's happening. So you can suppress it. You can push it down. You can keep it away as, as long as, as you have the power to do it. But really all you're doing is you're fighting a very powerful, uh, coercive force of anger with a very powerful, coercive force of greater anger. And you're really never solving the problem. Does that make sense? All right, so Jesus addresses this whole thing. So I want to find out really what Jesus has to say about this and what he has to communicate. So the first thing he says in verse 21, he says, You've heard it said before, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So what he's going to say is, is, you guys have heard it taught this way. Now, he's not taking the Torah or the Old Testament saying, the Bible, the Old Testament's messed up. I'll tell you how it really should be working. That's not what he's saying. All right? Some liberal theologians basically say, Jesus is speaking contrary to the Bible. He's not. What he's actually doing, he's speaking contrary to how the people understood the Bible because this is how they were taught. So here's what was taught. The people that were going around teaching, scribes and Pharisees, were saying, hey, don't kill anybody, because if you kill somebody, you might go to jail. All right? As long as you do that, everything's cool with you and God. All right? All right? And that's kind of what's going on. And, you know, there's like having, you know, pep rallies, like, anybody not want to kill anybody? Yeah, good, right with God. And Jesus is like, mm, you guys are missing the whole point. You're missing the point of the Torah. You're missing the point of what God really, truly meant. The flip side is this. Is sometimes people will go so far and say, well, Jesus is teaching something all brand new. It's never been heard before. Jesus is like talking, you know, he's addressing the issue of the heart. Do you know that God actually addresses the issue of the heart? I want you to turn real quick in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus is the third book in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. This is God speaking and what God speaks through the law in the book of Leviticus. 
is very, it almost echoes, it's a, almost a perfect echo of what Jesus is talking about here. Here's what it says, Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother, but you shall reason with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And God adds this little like tagline, because I'm God. He's like, hey, because I'm God, because I love, because I don't take vengeance out on people that really deserve vengeance. God said, and because you're to reflect me, reflect me. You understand that? So when Jesus comes along, he's not being like radically revolutionary in a sense of like, this has never been taught before. He's actually taking what has already been taught and he's breathing life into it because somehow along the way it just became dead ritual routine. That's what happens in the church a lot of times. Things just sort of become dead ritual and routine and they lose the element of life. That's what happens in our lives oftentimes. You know that happens in marriages? Right? You know what I'm talking about? If you're married, you're like, oh, totally, this all makes sense now. Like, that's me, all right? What I'm trying to say is that our lives have this tendency to sort of like bottom out, where we lose sort of this, this, you know, excitement about it or this freshness about it. So there has to be periodic checkups where we just sort of step back and say, have I lost it? What do I got to do to renew it? And that's what Jesus is doing. He's coming along and saying, listen, you guys have lost it. You've lost you, all that has happened is you've fallen into the category of just simply doing something without the attitude of love to empower it. He said, unless you change, unless you change, unless you are aware of the attitudes that go on, then you will have severe consequences. You've got to be aware of this. Here's what he's going to go on to say. Three things he's going to communicate about this. Verse 22 says, But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Word angry. Uh, or gizomai is the actual Greek word. Or gizomai. And it's the idea of uh, just, just fire or burning. Like you are just angry with somebody. And then he goes on. He says, you'll be liable to judgment. Probably the judgment, uh, not so much of, to come, of God. Probably a reference to the judgment of the courts. Meaning, to get like angry, you know, this could lead to a series of events that could end up in murder. So Jesus is actually going to the actual source of the attitude. So you got to be careful. This, this is where it starts. It's not just murder. It's not just the action of killing somebody that could land you in opposition with a, with a judge. But just the attitude could lead you there. All right? The second thing that he goes on to say, if you uh, say an insult, uh, some of your translations, here's what the ESV says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Some of your translations might say, whoever says, Raka, right? And you might read that and be like, yes, I've never committed that crime. Like, I, I know I've never said Raka to anybody. Like, whoo, I'm okay with God, right? No, probably not. But the, the, the term Raka was, was a phrase, first century, that Jesus probably wouldn't have said it. Everybody would have been like, okay, we know exactly what he's talking about. The word raka is actually, there's so many, uh, so much dialogue about like, what does this mean? You know, some people have put so many different words to it. Um, one of the best ways in which I heard this sort of uh, translated or interpreted is the word raka was sort of an inexpressible um, sigh 
of frustration, of disappointment, of disapproval. Here's what I think it is. Rakah was sort of this first century uh, way of handling people, dealing with somebody. It's like a sigh of disgust. If somebody walks by you and you're just like, right? right that's pretty bad. I'm not an actor. That's why I'm not an actor. You know, it's just like the sigh of like sheer disgust with somebody. It, and behind that sigh is this sort of like you're just writing somebody off. You're just like, you are so worthless. Right? In our modern day world, all right, it might be translated. That sigh, we might not just sit there like a Starbucks, like, hmm, right? That's not how we might not operate. We might think of a four-letter word instead of like a nice little sigh, all right? But behind that four-letter word is an attitude of sheer disgust and hatred and anger. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about, all right? Um, so that's, that's where he, I think he's going with this. So he says, he will be liable to the council. The word council there in the uh, uh, original is the word Sanhedrin, probably a reference to the religious leadership. He says, if you're not careful, this could lead you in trouble with the Sanhedrin. And then the last thing he says here, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable of the hell of fire. The word fool uh, in the original is a word morose. We get the English word moron from. And again, it's sort of a term of like judgment upon somebody. Interestingly enough, just for the sake of being fair with the text, Jesus actually uses the term morose. He calls the scribes and Pharisees, you morons. Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, morons. Thing is, is Jesus is probably pretty accurate in his description and sometimes when we use the term or we describe somebody as a loser or a moron or we, however we describe it, we're not accurate. We're not accurate because oftentimes we're looking at somebody through a lens of a lot of emotion. And that emotion discolors our ability to see anything good or of worth or of value. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how when you are angry with somebody or you are bitter with somebody, you're not sitting down like keeping a list of all the good characteristic traits that they have, right? No one's like, you know what, I'm so thankful for him, takes out the trash, you know, he ties his shoes, he's literate. I mean, these are like really good qualities about him. Nobody does that. Everybody's always like, I can't stand that person. They're never putting the cap back on the, whatever, you know, they're just mad. Whenever somebody is just embittered, you can't see anything good with somebody else at all. So, in other words, that anger, that emotion, discolors everything we see in that person. And it creates something inside of us that Jesus goes on to say, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the, hells of, to the, to the hell of fire. I want to describe a little bit about what the word is that Jesus uses here. It's actual Greek word, Gehenna. And it's actually the first time in the entire New Testament that Jesus uses it. Jesus speaks more about uh, Gehenna or Gehenna more than any other prophet, more than any other New Testament writer. So I think it's important for us to kind of understand a little bit of the context of what he's talking about. In Jerusalem, um, when Jesus spoke this word, he was in the Sea of Galilee. But in Jerusalem, there was a place I'll talk about in a second here. So when Jesus uses the phrase, the fire of Gehenna or the hell or uh, the, the Gehenna of fire or whatever, um, the people in the first century that were listening to Jesus, their minds would have immediately gone someplace. Okay? Uh, when I say ground zero, what do you think of? 
What do you think of? New York City, right? You get that? Ground zero is a hyperlink, right? It takes you someplace else, and it fills full of definition that phrase. The word ground zero means what happened in New York City. In the same way, Jesus says, you guys better be careful. Better be careful because otherwise what will happen, you will be liable to the Gehenna of fire. Immediately, everybody's mind went somewhere. So that's what I want to try to understand. Where did their minds go? How did they understand it? That will help lay the foundation for the rest of what Jesus is going to communicate with regard to this. And I think help us to understand in a broader sense why he chooses this metaphor to describe where this particular action of sheer hatred, malice, anger leads to. Uh, in Gehenna, the word Gehenna uh, was the name of a valley. It's called the Valley of Gehenna, which was just to the south of the city of Jerusalem. Um, back in the days of a king, a really wicked guy by the name of Ahaz, really wicked king, what he did as the king over Jerusalem, he instituted uh, the worship of a god by the name of Molech. And usually what they would do with this god Molech is they would have the statue and they would oftentimes put him in the fire and Molech was sort of like a bronze uh, type of a statue that would have these arms that were outstretched. And the arms would get, you can imagine, extremely hot. And, and the, in the Valley of Gehinnom, it just so happened to be that this was the spot where they chose to worship the god Molech. Part of the ritual of worshiping the god of Molech was after a woman would have birth, because part of Molech was uh, just sort of unbridled type sexual activities, people obviously would get pregnant. And these were unwanted pregnancies. Very similar to what happens in our culture today, although it's not worshiping any particular God. So a woman would have a baby. She doesn't want to have a baby. So what does she do? She takes a child that was conceived through the worship of the God Molech and would take the baby, then offer the baby as a sacrifice to the God. So she would go to the Valley of Gehenna and she would take her child as it was newly born and place it, or have the priest place it upon the arms of this burning hot statue of Molech. The child would die. Obviously. This was part of the worship of Molech. Now what had happened was after Ahaz was destroyed as a king, that particular region called the Valley of Hinnom sort of was viewed as cursed. Right? Cursed territory. Kind of in the same way in our culture today. You know, I don't believe in this type of stuff, but some people do. I don't think it's true. Like a haunted house. Like, ah, you know, someone got killed in a house 150 years ago. It's bad. If you go there, it's haunted. You don't want to buy that house. Bad property kind of the stigma that the Valley of Hinnom got through the years. So obviously, when you're looking to buy a house, you're living inside of Jerusalem, you're newly married, you're like, sweetie, where are we going to buy a house? Dude's like, hey, there's a really good piece of property overlooking the Valley of Hinnom. She's like, no. All right? Nobody wants to live there. It's a bad place. Everybody avoided it. And eventually end up becoming the place where people would just dump their trash. Right? They just dump the trash. There are lawn clippings, you know, dead animals would be dead. They'd throw it outside of the side of the building there and outside of the wall. They would take all the trash and just deposit it out there. And obviously at some point, you've got to do something with all the trash. So they began to burn it. They began to burn it. So there was sort of, in the time of Jesus, this is several hundred years after Ahaz, by this time, the Valley of Hinnom became very well known as being this place of burning. They would burn the trash non-stop. So anytime you went to Jerusalem, you would always smell the burning of fire. Animal carcasses were being burned. It was a horrible stench. Always fires, always smoke, always flame rising up from the Valley of Hinnom. It was cursed 
territory, and it became known in the minds of every Jew as sort of a euphemism of the future judgment that would happen before all mankind. That's how they viewed it. So the prophets would come along, and they'd basically say some, uh, some things kind of like this, in the same way that God judged the valley of Hinnom, and now it's just become this big ash heap. Someday God will judge living and the dead. That was sort of the idea. Just like Gehenna. Gehenna. We get the English word hell. Okay? So when Jesus talks about Gehenna, the valley of Gehenna, or the flames of hell, this would have been a very real metaphorical picture in their minds. So that being said, sometimes people ask me, is hell and the fire of hell a metaphor? To which typically I respond, probably. Yes. And oftentimes people breathe a sigh of relief and they're like, sweet, that's what I was hoping for. And then I usually say, it's probably a metaphor for something far greater. Far greater. Anytime Jesus uses the metaphor, he may be drawing upon a naturally occurring type circumstance or situation of his day, or something that was familiar to the people, such as the Valley of Gehenna was, but it's a metaphor of something even far greater. Jesus understands what would be to come. And he uses a very graphic illustration to say, this is what it's like. It's not exactly it. It's not exactly hanging out there on the side of the wall of Jerusalem. But it's, it's like it. It's like it. There's consuming going on. There's destruction going on. It's like a log and a perpetual fire that just maybe starts out as being a log, and then at some point loses its own identity and becomes one with the fire. That's what the fires of hell will be like. So Jesus makes this distinction and makes this point. But I also think that maybe two things are in sight here in Jesus' mind. Here's what I mean. I think on the one hand, Jesus is talking about a future consequence, because every Jew understood that one day there would be a judgment. All humanity would stand before a just God. And then we would have to give an account. Jesus talks about hell really more than any other uh, New Testament writer. So he speaks about one day there will come a day where all people will stand before God and will be judged. Some, Jesus says, will be like she- separated like sheep from the goats. Some will be brought into the presence of God. And this will be a place of uh, enjoyment and peace. Those that will be separated like will be the goats. They will be cast off in outer darkness. Jesus said they'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And it will be a place of torment. That's what Jesus describes it as. And so the point that I would make is this, is I think not only is Jesus talking about a future judgment that would one day happen, but I don't want to eliminate the present condition that I think Jesus is also basically saying. Let me try to put it to you like this. I think Jesus is not only, not only referencing what will happen one day, but he's also saying currently, today, people who live with anger in their heart, People who have unbridled malice and wrath and frustration and bitterness that does not get cut off. It will be like the flames of hell burning their soul. Burning them. Consuming them. Destroying them. Let me try to describe it to you by, the, by using the words of C.S. Lewis. I think he does a great job saying this. He says this, Christianity asserts that we're going to go on living forever. And that's either true or false. Now, there are a great many things that wouldn't be worth worrying about if I was going to only live 80 years or so. 
but I had better worry about if I'm going to be living on forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse. So gradually, that increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish that you could stop it. But there will come a day when you can no longer stop it. Then there will be no more you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble itself going on and on and on forever like a machine. It becomes not so much a question of God sending us or consigning us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell. Unless it's nipped in the bud. So here's what I think C.S. Lewis is saying. Is that there, there, there is a sense where the same destructive factors that will one day be present in a future judgment known as hell or the lake of fire are currently at work today destroying us. Destroying humanity is what I mean. Crushing us. Keeping us far away from God. Keeping us far away from life that God wants us to have in Him. So in other words, what happens is we continue on this pathway. What C.S. Lewis is trying to point out is that should we continue on that pathway and never having anything interrupted or change it or nip it in the bud or break the cycle... Then we, then we will go on living forever because that's we are. We're eternal souls. And that will lead to a hell. Now, I do believe there's a sense where one day God will consign us, should we not repent, to hell. But understand, Jesus says that hell was made for the devil and his angels. It was not made for human beings. It was not made for human beings. Here's what I think ultimately Jesus is trying to communicate. He's basically saying, guard your hearts. Because what's happening is in this life, in this world, those same flames, those same fires of consuming, of destruction, that will take your soul, your human soul, your humanness, and dehumanize you. Murder is dehumanizing. To see somebody on TV... Hanging is dehumanizing. To see people in Iran today trying to fight for some sense of human rights and human dignity, fighting, but ultimately being attacked as a result of that is dehumanizing. We were made in the image of God, as image bearers of God, that through that we would not only have relationship with God, but through that we would live at peace and love with each other. But what happens... We have troubles and difficulties in life that unless we know how to care and deal with them properly, they lead to particular actions or attitudes that are dehumanizing, that will destroy our world and ultimately incur God's judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's communicating. It's like a fire that's burning inside of us. So here's the question. How do we avoid these fires? How do we get away from them? How do we break the cycle? How do we do exactly what C.S. Lewis said, which is to nip it in the butt? What has to happen? 
What has to change? And this is the big question because, again, I think our world, people are big enough to recognize something's got to happen. I mean, there's got to be some sort of break in the structure, in the system. Otherwise, we're all going to just destroy ourselves, right? And that's kind of what's happening in the world today. It's like, if we just keep, you know, letting that North Korea have nukes, and we get let Iran have nukes, and how can we stop any other country? And before we know it, we're going to just be one big nuclear explosion on the planet. We're going to kill ourselves as a whole concept, right? How do we avoid that? Jesus is going to say something really profound. Here's the solution. Verse 23 says this, So, if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. And before the leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So the first thing Jesus is going to say is reconciliation. Be reconciled. What he says, he says this sort of in the context of, of religion. This is crazy. I mean, he's talking to Jewish people, obviously, so they're familiar with, you know, the whole institution of sacrifice and going to church, if you would, and bringing their sacrifice and worshiping God. But again, these people are all in, are all in Galilee. So he's saying, hey, when you go to Jerusalem, offer your sacrifice, and if you're there, and you remember, I got some issues with a brother, leave your gift there and go back to Jerusalem, or go back to Galilee. I mean, we're talking a 60-mile walk. And go make sure everything's cool. Go settle your affairs with them. And make things right. The second thing he goes on to say, not only be reconciled, but he also says make friends. Verse 25, he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. The word come to terms um, is sort of a compound word that can mean think favorably or uh, think the same thing, find agreement with each other, find some sort of means or common ground where you can work things out and become united, be connected. And here's why he says this. He says, you should come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him on your way to court, lest the accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and the guard puts you in prison, then truly I say to you, you will never get out until you pay paid the last penny. So I think what Jesus is saying is, he paints this picture of two people on their way to court. They're brothers. They're at odds with each other. They've got great anger, great hatred, a lot of emotion against each other. And he's saying, listen, you guys, you need to settle this. You need to come to terms with this, because the reality is, unless you settle it, there could be a point whereupon you end up going before the judge, and the judge is going to judge, hopefully righteously, you might be the one who ends up getting the judgment. Just be careful. You, you, just the way you break the cycle is this. Somebody, somewhere, has to lay down their weapons and say, I'm not going to fight the same way that you fought me. This is fulfilling the law. To lay it down. This fulfills the attitude, the heart, the intention of the mind of God at being human, living in relationship to God, and in living in proper relationship with other people. This is exactly why God says, don't be angry, but rather love your neighbor as yourself and love me, the Lord your God. And God just finishes with this little cabinet. Because I'm God. And his whole point is don't miss that. You are created in the image of God. And God has created us so that we would fulfill the function for what he created us, which is to have fellowship with him and to live at peace and harmony within this 
people in this world. Yet sin comes in, destroys us, and because our fallen humanity is so broken, we cannot for a moment stand feeling wrong. There's a sense of injustice about that. And so therefore we fire back. And what happens when you have two people keep firing back is you have a cycle that keeps going on. The problem is it keeps getting higher. It gets ratcheted up. Bigger. Stronger. Higher each time. So how do you break the cycle? Jesus basically says, you've got to get off your throne. You've got to get off. You might be to blame. You might not be to blame. But somebody has to break the cycle. Somebody has to be the one to stand in front of three Chinese tanks and says, Enough! I can't let this happen. The soul, my soul is being consumed. It's being destroyed like a log in the fire that's just lost its identity. God created you to reflect His identity. Not that of anger. Not that of malice and murder. And the only way to break that cycle, Jesus says, somebody has to get off the throne, step down, and say, I'll do something different. Which Paul picks up this whole theology and he says, this is the beauty of the Gospel. Jesus steps off of His throne. Righteous judge, if there's anybody who is righteous, who's anybody who had any right, any right doing to judge and condemn offenders, it was Jesus. He steps off of His throne, enters into our world, takes upon Himself flesh and blood, lives like us, feels like us, hurts like us, understands what it means to be betrayed, understands what it means to have physical torment, but doesn't fight back. He actually turns the other cheek. He actually reconciles and makes friends with his opposers. That's why Paul picks it up. In Romans chapter 5, he says this, For while we were yet enemies with God, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by faith? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul's going to later go on to say the bigger, most beautiful reality of this is that God has taken us and not only reconciled us, in other words, he sort of said everything's cool, it's all fine, we're connected, we're reunited again. And not, does, not only does God just simply say you're my friends, but Paul takes it a step further and he says here's what God actually does to you. He says you who are far off, you who are distanced from God, you who are in, enemies of God... God has made you and adopted you into His family as sons and daughters. So God Himself, through Jesus, reconciles and makes friends. So we look at this huge, tall Lord and we realize, I can't do this. I can't do this. And that, again, is ultimately meant to drive us back to being at the foot of the cross and realizing we need Jesus. One of my favorite authors, a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, tells this story. He says, uh, imagine if a friend of yours came over to visit your home while you were gone. And while you were out, 
um, someone comes by, or you end up coming back home, and you talk to your friend. He's like, hey, I want to tell you, I, I, I paid the debt for you that somebody came by, and you owed them. I don't know, Lloyd-Jones says, I don't know, I don't know how to respond to that person. I don't know how to respond until I know the size of the debt that was paid. I mean, if it was just back postage, you know, I mean, you know, postman comes by, he's like, ah, you forgot to put a stamp on there, and the guy's like, here, here's another nickel. Sorry, it's cool. I'm sure you didn't mean it. Um, or if finally, after years, the creditors come, and the people that repossessed houses come, and they finally caught you, and he says, I paid that bill for you. He says, until I know how much my debt has been paid, I don't know whether to shake the guy's hand or to fall at his feet in thankfulness. And the same is true for our lives. You guys, I want to just simply put it this way. When Jesus says, don't let anger, malice, rage, hatred sit and stew in your heart, that's the same type of phrase of a good father saying to his four-year-old kid, playing with a very sharp knife, saying, please, just put it down. You'll kill yourself. You'll hurt yourself. You will slice yourself. I'm asking you, just put it down. Guys, don't view it as a threat. I think maybe a threat's involved at some point, but I don't want you to mishear the term or the terms of the tone of voice of Christ in this passage. I don't personally view this as a threat whereby Jesus is like, listen, don't be angry, otherwise you're going to go to hell. Right? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, anger and rage, it will bring about a fire that will destroy you and dehumanize you and destroy people you love. I've come to reconcile you to myself. I've come to befriend you. Now that you've been given this reconciliation, I want you to there go for serve in a ministry of reconciliation. That's the, what the gospel teaches us, is that we have been reconciled to God so that now we can be reconcilers, so that we would not be living under the same torment that will one day classify and characterize those outside of the kingdom with sorcerers and murderers and sexually immoral and the rest of the crew. Jesus comes to save us from the anger and the hatred. Guys, I hope you hear that. I hope you hear the love of God in that. That Jesus actually comes to set us free from that rage, from that anger so that we would have right relationship with Him on a vertical level, but then have a right relationship with others on a horizontal level. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond to God. We'll respond by singing. We'll respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests here, please don't feel any obligation to give. It's a way for us to give joyfully to God. If you want to give, give out of a joyful heart. We're going to worship. We're going to sing a few songs to the Lord. But this ultimately, guys, is why we love Jesus. He paid a debt for us that was so massive. We'll just think about it this way. Can you heal yourself from anger? Can you? Can you just one day snap your fingers and it's over? You can't. That's what the gospel does. Jesus comes and says, I will free you from those flames which will destroy you.
Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you that the cross stands for us as a picture of what evil does, but also what great reconcilers do. The cross speaks to us not only of great evil and wrath, but also speaks to us of amazing love that reaches out. Jesus, we want to live like you. We don't want to carry the weight, the burdens, the anger, the hatred, the malice that just plague our hearts. We want to be free from that. We want to be set free, not just free from an emotion, but free to love, free to reconcile, free to reach out to people, free to be humbled, to step off of our thrones of righteousness and be reconcilers to people. We need your help to do that.
bounds. You have sought to rescue us, those who are offenders of the gospel, offenders of you, Lord. We have taken the image that you've given to us, and we've just betrayed that. We've distorted it. We've ruined it. And in doing so, we've distorted your image, your beauty, as it should be revealed through our lives. We just, just mistreated it. We've squandered what good we've been given by you. Selfishly. Out of anger. Father, we, we want to confess that to you. We just want to confess, Lord, what we desire is to have hearts that are like yours and to be transformed by your power to look like you, to act like you, to treat other people the way that you've treated us and to show reconciliation, to be reconcilers in the same way that we've been reconciled by you. Lord, we want that God but we confess at the same time there's it's just in our flesh we cannot do it in our own life we can't that's why we need Jesus that's why we love the gospel because Jesus as Paul says Christ in us he's the hope he's our hope our hope of any glory that's why we look to you Jesus even right now thank you Thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you've done for us. God, we pray today that you would help us to go forth from here living the gospel in a way that is uh, just reflective of your greatness in our lives. For your glory and for our, our joy in you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Don't forget to call your dads. Dads, enjoy your day. Lay around. Don't do any chores. Eat carbohydrates. Bye.